Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Odds are good that almost any application you build will have more than one user. In a lot of cases, those users are grouped into organizations. And most organizations really don't like having their private business critical information shared with everyone else, especially when those people are potential clients, competitors, or, you know, the general public. Applications with multiple tenants, each with their own security structures, present interesting challenges for application developers, especially as your application becomes more complicated. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the things that you need to consider if it looks like your application is going to become multi-tenant now or at some point in the future. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? I have been fighting uh, issues trying to get hierarchical structures out of a database in a flat form and then make them hierarchical to send them down the wire in JSON format. And it doesn't sound sound, torture. Yeah, it doesn't sound as bad as it is because there's just a lot going on (laughs) in that and it has to be relatively quick and so the, you know, the data comes out and sometimes I don't have a single root node. Sometimes it's multiple trees. And so like, you know, they may have a reference that says, here's my parent, but the parent's not in there. And you just got to find those. And <laughs> yeah, it's, I, you know, I, I'll just say this. I should not have started that before I had coffee. You know, mm. you need to be a couple of cups of coffee in before you do that. You need to do like something else. And, Anything else? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's been loads of fun. I'll just say that. Um, speaking of loads of fun, I also got to go to NSS and do mock interviews with some of the students there, which was really cool. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of potential in that building, so it, it was it was fun doing the interviewing. So, how about you? Well, my final is this coming Tuesday, and I am stressing about it. I just feel like I haven't studied enough. The first half of the semester, there were a lot of videos to watch and that helped because I could like go to the gym, get on the treadmill, watch a video, then come home and read about it. Unfortunately, there aren't any videos the second half. And so I'm trying to work my way through kind of some PowerPoint slides and book chapters and it's just a pain. I'm going to be doing that after we finish up tonight, uh, fix some dinner and then jump right back into it all weekend long maybe doing it. Um, I took actually requested the entire week off because I'm speaking next weekend, but uh, I'm only taking probably Monday and Tuesday off and I'll spend Monday studying too. So it's a, you know, yay, vacation days spent studying in cooler, more exciting news. Uh, while I was down visiting my sister over Easter, they took me to see Garth Brooks in the swamp. Which, if you guys don't know, Garth was my absolute favorite musician growing up. Still my favorite country musician. Uh, it's the first time that they had a concert in the football stadium at UF in 20 years. 
So that was kind of exciting. Huge production. If you guys follow me on social media, I posted tons of pictures, especially on Instagram. Uh, we even tailgated before the show. My brother-in-law is a chiropractor and one of the MRI places always has a big tailgate party. And so we got to go have barbecue and hang out with them. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I ended up doing some technical work for them while I was there uh, with the audio. Uh, so that was, you know, the show was really awesome. Uh, we had great seats. Uh, Garth even did a three song tribute to Tom Petty who, by the way, is from Gainesville. So that's kind of why he he did that. So I got to see my favorite country musician performer seeing a tribute to my favorite rock musician in his hometown. Like, just absolutely amazing. Uh, it, it was great. I, I, I don't normally video concerts, but that tribute, I just like, as soon as I knew what he was doing, I, I had to... Uh, I posted it. I, I think I only posted it on Facebook because the video was way too long to put on Instagram. But uh, I might pop that up on Twitter if I can figure out how to do that. But uh, speaking of concerts, I've got something really cool for IOTs. Lucy Labs has built an IoT wristband for concert goers and organizers. For attendees, the band pulses with the rhythm of the music and their movement, uh, enhancing the concert experience, and some of them even light up. It's really kind of like great. Uh, this is wonderful for raves or dance parties with lots of EDM or techno music. For the producers and organizers, it collects and sends data about the crowd and how they are reacting to the concert. This could mean changes in how concerts are put together or even new forms of art created from that data. There's just a lot of really awesome possibilities. And I'll have a link to Lucy Lab's website in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, uh, it's more of a shout out for a comment on Vetsu Code. And this is from Peter Mortensen. It says, add the book recommendations to the show notes? Question mark. Uh, one of them is Rework, Change the Way You Work Forever by Jason Freed and uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen. That's DHH uh, from the Ruby on Rails community uh, that everybody okay. knows. Peter, thank you so much for looking up that information. Uh, he also posted one of the other books that was mentioned and just a really big shout out for doing that. Dude, you deserve a water bottle. So send us a message with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. You can check us out each week on Facebook Live, where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions. Or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. When building an application that simply serves a bunch of users, you can make a lot of assumptions. You might assume that you can share a certain amount of data between those users, that they can interact in certain ways, and that they can use certain features of the application. 
However, if your clients are businesses or other organizations, you'll quickly find that those organizations want to have their own little areas in your application, and they only want their users to interact with each other. Further, they're going to want assurances that their sensitive data is not going to be shared, uh, either on purpose or on accident. It gets even more fun if any part of the system is exposed to your client's clients. Changing a system to support multiple organizations sounds simple, especially to the business people who don't really have to deal with the consequences. You'll hear a lot of words like, just when this happens. Now, in this episode, we're, we're intending to make sure that you can appropriately advise stakeholders so that they understand that the word just shouldn't be in their vocabulary at all. It's also true that you may want to set up a multi-tenant system. If that's the case, this episode includes a lot of information about things that you should consider when doing so. So starting off, what is multi-tenancy? Yeah, well, Wikipedia defines it as a software architecture in which a single instance of software runs on a server and handles multiple organizations. So a tenant is defined as a group of users who share common access with specific privileges to the software instance. Within a multi-tenant architecture, a software application is designed to provide every tenant a dedicated share of the instance. And all these definitions came off of Wikipedia. So multi-tenancy offers a few benefits. First off, it can be cheaper to host than a multi-instance system. Also, it can save money using the economy of scale, and you can data mine across customers to find out about industry trends. And that's the one that most fascinates me with like the, the interest in data science and you know machine learning and, and discovering those trends. So. so the first issue that's going to come up is how you handle permissions in a multi-tenant system. So you're going to probably have to have a way for your clients to manage security for their own team members. You know, not everybody's the CEO. And this means that you'll need all the typical infrastructure that's used to handle application permissions currently, but you'll need to have a restricted version for clients because they can't touch anybody else's security, just theirs. If there are financial consequences for adding, removing users, you'll need to have business rules based around that. Right. So like, you know, if you're charging on a per user basis, you now have to record this information and get it somewhere that it affects billing. And so there's going to be all kinds of little hooks around that, that accounting is going to want to know about. Yeah. And, and sometimes people in the organizations don't understand how that works. I, I watched this happen today where, um, we have a, a service we're using that they charge per user. And we had two people that were, that had user accounts that could go in and check stuff on their system. Well, we just expanded to four. And when that announcement was made, um, one of the, the junior developers made a, made a case and he, he made a good case, not knowing everything about it that, Hey, all of the developers should have this. And, you know, then it came back. Well, you know, we've been fine with two. We're just expanding it so that, you know, if they're both gone at the same time, we'll have extra people around and it costs per person. Right. So they don't want to just you know, blanket it out to everyone. This isn't something that's like free user account or anything. Well, and the other thing that gets interesting is if you're dealing with an organization, a lot of them will say, oh, we only have one user account and we just share the password among 20 people. Uh, so you're also going to have to mitigate that. 
So the other thing that happens is that most organizations are going to want both, you know, groupings of users and the ability to use the groupings to secure their own assets. However, most small organizations are just going to want to secure things at the user level and then change over to groups as they grow. They don't want a whole bunch of complicated setup when they're first starting out. Yeah, and this really complicates things. Um, it tends to mean that a change from who owns this to who can access this and in what way can they access this. Right. So, for instance, you may have somebody that they created an asset in the system and then they get promoted or moved to another department and now they can't even access the thing that they created before. And that's mm -hmm. a completely common scenario. And you got to be able to handle that. Oh, yeah. Or like you have someone at an organization that has access to certain information and then they leave that organization and go to a competitor. Yeah. And you have to block them from their original organization's information, but then give them permission for the other organization. Yeah, and it gets it gets even weirder than that. In fact, we're going to get into that here in a minute. Uh, another use case is organizations may want to share their assets with other organizations. Like, for instance, <laughs> um, you know, I've worked at companies where like the sales guy left and worked with a strategic partner, and mm -hmm. then was still making sales for the original company because he was still talking to people. And so, like, he had to have access to stuff even though he didn't work there anymore because it was to the first company's advantage for him to have it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, another thing I can see with this is um, like an organization that has a lot of subsidiaries or, or other organizations involved in it yeah. where you have what that organization has is its own entity, but it has other entities that, that don't need to know about each other. They only need to know about their own little thing within that. Oh man, that could get so complicated. Yeah, I'm very aware of how that one goes because of some <laughs> stuff at work. And the thing is, is they don't want their information or their you know stats rolling up in somebody else's reports or vice versa. Yeah. And really, at the end of the day, what happens is, is that users are no longer owned by an organization, potentially, in a lot of those cases, especially when you start thinking mergers and acquisitions. So I... I, I I don't know if we're going to get into this, but uh, so with that, if a user is not owned by an organization, does the user then own the organization? No, I would, ass I would assume uh, that a user would would own an organization and the organization is where the assets live. Yeah, potentially. But then users would have their own bucket. You see how complex this is when you have to model the real world. It doesn't it doesn't it, it go doesn't well. always flow. Yeah. Next, they may want single sign-on with their own domain, uh, website, or whatever. And this gets really interesting quickly when you have a lot of different ways to do it. Right. So you got like OAuth handshakes, you got all those kind of things. They may want to, for instance, have Active Directory and have their users and groups in their Active Directory be the groups in your system so that they can mm -hmm. secure things based off of their known groups and it constantly is hitting their domain controller. <laughs> or hitting some <laughs> other resource like that. Um, I mean, that's a thing that happens. This gets really fun, too, when you have things, uh, the server software that they're running has a major security hole and only half of your clients have updated. And if their system happens to go down, you've got other problems as well on top of all of that. Audit trailing can be a lot. Yeah, you better believe that you're going to have an audit trail on this one. There's <laughs> no way you're getting around that. 
and the audit trails have to be visible to the tenants as well, because that's part of their property is knowing who did what, when, so that they can, mm-hmm. you know, so they can troubleshoot things. And those clients may actually be legally bound to make sure that unauthorized parties cannot get to their data. You're on the hook if you said it was safe and it wasn't. And so you're going to have to have these audit trails too, and they have to be not editable by the client. Especially yeah. if you're, you know, working within government medical medical field. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of stuff that we do here in Nashville because we have all the medical clients. Yeah, um, that is just complicated. You need to be able to quickly separate audit trails by the tenant, um, just in case they're subpoenaed and they need to pull that up. Yeah, and you don't want to breach privacy for everybody. Because that would be the worst, right? Is like you you give the audit logs for a couple of tenants by mistake, and the second tenant that had nothing to do with this gets prosecuted too for something else. Mm-hmm. That would uh, that would not be helpful to your business reputation. So, an organization can be looked at as a group of people at a point in time or a period of time, not forever. And this is another problem that comes in. Organizations are constantly in flux. So companies get bought, they get sold, they get merged, get dissolved, you know, all kinds of stuff happens. And you have to plan from the get-go how you're going to handle a merger or an acquisition among your clients because it will eventually happen. Now, this doesn't sound too bad until you realize that a lot of mergers and acquisitions don't really happen all at once. So they may want their acquired company to be a subsidiary or sub company for a while. Um, a lot of times, and, and I've seen this happen outside of development, just you know, in the regular workforce where a place gets absorbed and it's slowly added to, and it may be like department by department too. I worked at a psychiatric hospital that was the psychiatric hospital at this other big hospital. And it was a separate entity. And then while I was working there, they got absorbed because it it added to the stature of the teaching hospital. And so, like, I got to watch that process happen from a kind of peon level. I mean, that was just a, a low-level tech counselor. And so, it was, it was interesting to see. Um, now, from, from the development standpoint, though... Uh, This means you now have a hierarchy in the mix, which makes security and permissions really complicated. Yeah, because the parent company can get to the child company stuff, but vice versa, maybe not, or maybe. I mean, you're going to have to have some means of dealing with situations where everybody with admin permissions in one company got fired, and you need to hand off to the other company. Uh, You know, this reminds me of, do you remember when we were in college and I went on that mission trip to Northern Ireland Yeah. and while I was there, my, the place I worked for went out of business. I came back, you paid for me to go to a, a a martial arts thing that I was planning on going to, but because I didn't have a job anymore and my last two paychecks bounced, I didn't have the money for it. While we were there, I got a call. The company had been bought by a larger organization and I had a job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And stuff like that happens all the time. I mean, and you'll see companies that'll, they'll buy another company and they will, they'll fire all the admin staff. And then they're like, Oh crap. 
<laughs> and they can't get in and they're going to call you in a panic yeah. to, to get that back together. Uh, the other thing that will happen sometimes is companies will sell off parts of themselves. So like they may have built one business up and then they started building up another business and that second one got bigger. And so they sell, they sell the first one off. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you have all kinds of fun issues with stuff like historical reporting because now company two doesn't have company one stuff in there except when they did. So how do numbers come out on you know reporting? Like there's going to be all kinds of interesting and fun things happening there. And a lot of times they don't do that all at once either. So some people are in bo- both organizations for a while. Next, some organizations or people using their stuff um, who are misusing their stuff. Yeah. Misbehave. And sometimes they're the same people. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, the internet can be a dangerous place for software to live. If your software handles any type of sensitive data at all, or it looks like it might, you know, it may not do it now, but it may have that potential. Somebody is going to be trying to break in. Or if you're using WordPress, they just try to break in because it's there. Well, there's that, you know, and if you're using anything off the shelf, like WordPress in your stack, there are probably script based attackers out there running stuff too. So if you extended some other product to make your thing, Now, when an organization is attempting to use your software, they're going to screw up at some point. That happens to everybody. And this can be as simple as a developer messing up a timer and flooding your system with requests, like if they're trying to integrate with you. Um, And this is always a possibility of creating a problem when it takes more computing power to service a request than it takes to make one. Like that asymmetry is always going to be a problem at scale. The thing about this is it almost always applies to computing tasks done over a network. I mean, otherwise, you do it yourself locally and save the latency. Right. So if they need your service for something, it's because they actually need it and they're they're very likely to screw up. Your customers will eventually hire someone who is a bad actor and or they'll suffer a breach. So they may get a developer that tries to crack your system either on their behalf or you know, for whatever nefarious reasons, or they just screw up and put their password in GitHub. Not that that's, you know, not not that that's ever happened and not that there's, you know, no bots scanning for that now. Yeah. You should never assume a system is secure, especially someone else's system. Oh my goodness. Especially someone else's system. Someone working for one of your customers may try to illegally obtain data for another customer. I mean, this is industrial espionage. Um, it's a real thing. There's movies about it. Uh, it's kind of a fascinating field if you look into it, but it's something you really got to watch out for. Yeah. And if your system, you know, just kind of trusts everybody that they'll stay in their own lane, guess what? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to get nailed and it will be your fault. And somebody with bad intentions may get a job with one of your good customers and just abuse the system and take it down for everybody. Yeah, there's that. Well, well, as I say, is it's interesting. Um, I recently worked on uh, beefing up some security stuff for one of our kind of internal services, and um, officially because it's not outward facing, it doesn't have to go through like the big security check that we put everything through. Yeah, I specifically requested it go through that because I'm like, no. This is this is too important not to go through 
the full on let's make sure like let's do all the tests on it and make sure that it it is as secure as we can possibly make it yeah i i think we have to get past the point of looking at our network as an eggshell and you know the, the outside world is outside and we're safe because that egg has been cracked because yep. people walk in every day with devices from mm-hmm. outside like that's over that's true that's and true. speaking of eggs getting cracked um, or how you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet customers also really really like to customize their software and this true. will drive you batty especially <laughs> when your customers clients are interacting with a system you know either either your clients or their clients are going to want to customize things or both this could be as simple as adding logos and changing colors to match their own system um, or it could mean branding for your customers clients it may even mean further customization to tie in with their processes through webhooks, APIs, and other reporting systems. Yeah, and if customizations could potentially be extensive, this means you need to think about how your clients are going to roll out changes to their clients. Uh, they probably don't want to edit in production. Like, I don't know, let's say that you have some magazine, like, I don't know, Vanity Fair as a client and you're designing a new website for them. They probably don't want this page is under construction while you mess with CSS. I'm just going to hazard a guess that that's not a thing that they're going to be okay with. Oh, you mean they they don't want the um the death star that we have on ours? Yeah, for 404s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just don't think Vanity Fair really, really cares about that. Probably not. Um, And the other thing is a lot of these companies, if they are customizing, they may outsource the work. And Mm -hmm. so they don't want their client's data exposed to this shady developer that they hired from halfway across the planet to do CSS. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So they're going to have to have a dev system for that kind of stuff. Um, especially like bank work and th- those kind of things, like that's a big no-no. You don't send that overseas. Or if you're in Europe, like actually just having data on a computer under GDPR is probably illegal. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, also they're going to really want the ability to roll back any changes that they make. Yeah. Um, because, you know, this new manager decided on a redesign, you rolled it out, he gets fired. They go, okay, the first order of business is to roll that crap back. you better be able to do that yeah yeah Um, the other fun thing is their clients may you know you may have customizations at your client level and their customizations may need to be rolled out in a staged fashion to their clients so that they're not disruptive of business at certain points in the day Um, it's unlikely that all of your customers clients are going to be okay with the same outage window essentially or that all of your clients are going to be for that matter uh, this may mean that you need to support staged rollouts of customizations and or feature flags per client or per their client. Next, you need to think about deployments, releases, and outage windows. Yeah, it is so much fun when you think you can take the entire system down while you're upgrading. <laughs> um, that's not like that is not the expectation anymore. It was 10 years ago, um, but that time has passed. If you have a lot of clients, this means that you're going to either postpone an update until they can all tolerate it, or you force them to all tolerate it, or you never update. So you really can't take the system down now and have very many clients. You really, really want 
to set up a mechanism for rolling out changes while the system is still running live. Yeah. And so I worked at a company where we did this and we had uh, load balanced set up at Rackspace. And so you call in and you say, pull everything off of this one server. In other words, don't send any new traffic to it. Traffic drops down to zero. You roll out to there. Then you start load balancing it over. All the new feature flags are turned off when you first start. And then you roll to the other server. Once that one's under full load, then you rebalance the load. Then you start turning those feature flags on slowly. So if anything causes a load spike, any other problems happen, you don't have the system go down. That makes sense. I follow that. Yeah. You also need to carefully consider what happens when different parts of the system are on different versions of the software. Yeah. So like, let's say you have a long running job that's calling a microservice sitting out on the network and you just updated that microservice, but you didn't update the thing that was running that one job. Now, another instance of it has been updated. How do you manage that? Um, I did it using versioned uh, message queues. So if it, you know, if it broke the uh, signature of the message, then I changed it to a different version on that message queue. And so you just run until nothing is going in and then you can kill it. That makes um, sense. I, yeah. I've done that with um, with versioning and leaving the the old endpoints the same, and creating new endpoints for the next the new version. That's kind of roughly what I was doing. It just was over AMQP instead of over HTTP. Okay. Um, yeah. The other fun thing that you might want to do is have a feature flag that keeps those long running jobs from starting. So you. You set all those like an hour before you go live, and then you let all those other jobs run until they're done, and then you actually do your deploy, and then you get to play catch up. Yeah, but it's still easier than breaking yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, um, but you also have another fun thing, and that is that version inequality tolerance is not something that can be one way. Uh, you may have to roll back. So mm-hmm. you, you need to consider what happens if you fail on a rollout and you have to roll back changes. So what happens if data was committed in the new way the system is, and then you had to roll back to the previous? Yeah. Especially if you like made changes to the data structure and how it was. Yeah. Like you removed a column, for instance, because you don't need it now, and now you do need it. What are you going to yeah. do? Um, yeah. You can't just restore a backed up version of the database if financially significant events occurred while this was going. This also is why we test things, but you'll still roll stuff out that'll break the world. It'll happen. Yeah, I mean, you can test things all, like, completely thoroughly and roll it out and find something that no one ever thought of. Yeah. You're going to want to ignore spurious errors during a rollout, except when you don't want to ignore them. Yeah. (laughs) So this is where it gets fun too. So you're going to have an elevated level of errors that happen during a rollout just because of systems going offline, systems coming online, messages going to the wrong place on occasion, that kind of stuff will happen. Sometimes you want to ignore those if they don't matter. However, you can't just ignore all of them because the errors might point to a problem that means you need to roll back. And you're going to have to have some mechanism for determining what those look like before you try to roll out. And this could be anything from a SQL query that you run periodically to, you know, any number of other things, including uh, some goober sitting there looking at the log file. And that was always my job <laughs> when I wasn't doing the rollouts. I ain't goober. 
So the next thing you have to contend with is data sharding. Eventually, you'll have a reason to break your data store into multiple data stores. Now, this can occur because of the sheer volume of data, geographic distance between users, or even regulatory issues. Like we, we've talked about some already. This might also occur when you have clients who are just paranoid and sometimes rightfully so. Yeah, they just want to pay for their data to be in a separate database from everybody else's, but they still want to use the main system. That'll happen. And data sharding brings interesting issues into the mix as staged upgrades are happening, particularly as you're changing database schemas. Your assumptions about database schemas can really cause problems. So if you have code that's thinking, okay, I'm at this version, but now the data store has changed or it hasn't changed and the code calling it has, you got to figure out how to time all those rollouts so that you're not breaking stuff all over the place. And this can mean that you do rollouts to a database in multiple stages. So for instance, if you've got to add a column, this may not mean that you add it and it has a non-null value in it. You may add it and it's nullable at first and you derive the values through some back-end process over time, fill it all in, and then you switch it over to be non-nullable. Uh, at some time, we're going to have to talk about migrating databases from an old one to a, to a newer one because the headaches we've had with this exact thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I could go on for days about and it's fun when there's dozens of databases and the caller switches between different ones. Mm -hmm. um, that gets ugly really quick. You have to have code that looks and says, hey, does this field exist? And then yeah. take action based on that. This also means that systems directly interacting with the databases have to have graceful fallback if version incompatibility occurs. Right. So they may need to probe the database and go, hey, what version is this database at? And you're going to have to have some way of tracking that or tracking it by schema or tracking it by caller or whatever and go, hey, this is, a, this is ahead of me and it's got a breaking change. I can't do this right now. I've already mentioned data migrations, but sometimes they take a lot of time. And things like large index rebuilds, data migrations, all this stuff can take hours. And we've been dealing with this on the app that I've been working on. We're I, I am happy to announce that we are going to full UAT. The business is truly testing it next week. We've nice. got like all of our, our bugs knocked out. We've got our migrations done. It's, it's so close to being completed. I am so excited about it. But you know what? The last two or three weeks... All the issues we've had were from data migration. And that's usually what your issues are in production, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, really, those data migration issues are way more complex than whatever led to them happening. Yeah, that's, I've been noticing that. And I, I feel bad because I don't know the scripts that are being used for the migration. So I just find the errors hours after it's been run you know, when it finally finishes and I get to get back in there and, and look, I'm like, hey, this is wrong. Yeah. And I can't tell you why it's wrong. Whereas with other things, it's I, I can. Now I'll tell you, dude, the biggest issue we've run into, and I don't know how to fix this because it, it happens every time and it's a different, it's usually a join table, but it's a different table every time, is the sequences aren't right. Yeah. Uh, with like... Uh identity columns in SQL. 
So yeah. you have to turn that off and insert the rows you want to insert and then turn it back on. Yeah. And, and so like, we'll get, we'll go in and we'll be like, we're getting a primary key violation because the next value in the sequence is nine and the max number of rows in the table is 16,092. Yeah. Because you've tried, you've had like four, you know, four failed deployments already and they didn't roll back successfully. And that's another thing that'll get you. Um, most of the time you're going to want to back up the database before you do a deployment. Uh huh. Well, you know, so if you really screw up, you can actually recover, but that takes hours. Yes, it does. And the system performance may be garbage for a very, very long time. Um, you know, I know that we've had clients that, you know, it may take five hours to do a backup of their database. And they're on mm-hmm. fast hardware. It's just they got a lot of data. So the next point is insider security threats. Um, if you're hosting access to your client's data, you also have to mitigate risks from inside your own organization. And this means audit trails and logging that can't be disabled by most people at your organization. So that means the developers don't have access to the production database anymore. And you may have really, really sensitive data, and you may want to have notifications happen if something particularly sensitive is accessed. For instance, mm-hmm. I worked for a company that did background system cleanups. So, like, if somebody had an ID breach, uh, we cleaned that up for them. And we had some clients in there that were flagged as, hey, this person is famous. And if you hit one of those records, it triggered and somebody got an email and they came down to your office with a box for you to pack your stuff up in because, you know, like former presidents and stuff like that, like you just can't, uh, you can't have that going on and you're going to have to have systems for that so that you can handle legal liability, especially if you get sensitive data, like, you know, I don't know, a Hollywood star with their medical data, right? If you leak that to the inquirer, the inquirer doesn't get in trouble, but you do and your organization gets sued. And so you're going to have to think about those kind of things. That makes sense. I follow that. Um, Yeah. You're, you're really going to want very stringent security checks for any data access. Developers shouldn't have access to production as a regular business operation. I mean, this is something that you want only in extreme circumstances. Yeah. And as a developer, you don't want that personally either, right? You want to mm-hmm. say, look, I can't get to that. Yeah. Um, so when I was talking about our uh, migrations, when we migrated stuff to dev and test environments, if one of those issues came up with a sequence, I was able to just jump in, alter sequence, you know, increment by and just fix it. But when we got to UAT and then putting stuff out into production, I do not have access there. I can tell you what the error that I'm getting back is and you know if it's a primary key violation i can i could tell the dba hey here's where the problem is i can do nothing about it yeah or if uh there is really sensitive data that somehow makes it in there and you need to delete it um i've been in situations where we've had you know very personal data for very well-placed people Mm -hmm. and i've had to sign off on documents saying i saw this other developer delete this it has gone out of the system Yep. And you have two developers sitting there so that you've got, you know, a witness. Um, And that's, you're going to have to have procedures in place for that. And your marketing people are never going to think about it until it blows up in their face. And then they're going to blame you. Also, audit trails will have to be maintained for a very long time. Clients lie sometimes, especially when they find they have 
a liability for a breach. Your system will need to be able to prove that no one inappropriately accessed a record, even if that occurred years and years ago. Yeah, and this can be interesting too, because audit trails can be huge. And so you may have to have a regular process that pulls those off to another system so that you can you know, actually have a functioning database for your clients instead of just for the FBI. Yeah, I mean, you really need to consider what happens to audit trails of particular tables when those tables change over time, especially when data is removed from those tables. Right. So like if you remove a column from a table, what happens to its audit trail table? So what you're going to have to leave it there. Yeah, I would say what what we do is we have specific triggers for that in our audit tables. Yeah, we do too. But I'm talking about like if you remove a column from a a running table and then what what do you do with the audit trail table now? Because the new records won't have that in. And so you've got to think about how you mitigate all those things well in advance of having to do it. Yeah. So another fun area uh, is APIs, webhooks, and bulk loading of data. Uh, These are all things that clients are going to be asking for pretty early on. So if they're of any size, they're going to want to customize their system's interaction with your system. Presumably, you're not a turnkey solution that handles all the things for all the people. Mm-hmm. So they're going to they're going to want to hook in somewhere. Yeah, this usually means that you will need API endpoints for clients to use for querying your system. This can also mean webhooks for situations where the client wants to be notified that something happened in the system. Yeah, you if know, you don't do that, they're going to be polling you. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They may also need means for bulk uploading or editing of data. I've actually been working on something sort of a little bit on the side, but it's been my, hey, when you're not fixing a bug, work on this for that specific thing in another area. This is especially important during early onboarding phases. Uh, As we're moving towards more digital format, we're putting a lot of paper forms into like we're scanning them in and then storing them. And so that's something that I've been working on. I've actually gotten to do some like really cool file transfer stuff and things like that. It's like really kind of low level that I don't normally get to play with. So I've been really enjoying it. (laughs) Yeah. Wait till you uh, experience the fun of antivirus locking a file while you're trying to work on it because you just wrote out a new file. and It's like, Oh, I'm going to lock that. Like I'm, I'm reading and writing from this file and I didn't get an exclusive lock because I didn't think I needed one. And yeah. so the antivirus did instead. Yeah, I run into fun. that all the time. So if your clients are using APIs or bulk operations, you need to be cautious on how they use your system when they do this. It's so like if a developer is anticipating how a system is going to be used you know, inside that system, they tend to only anticipate how their own code would use it. So, for instance, you may not um, like you may have a client that's dumb enough that says, hey, I need to disable this user logon," And they may go, well, I don't I'm not going to delete that user. I'm just going to constantly try to log in. So they're locked out. I mean, like you'll see stuff from clients that you're just like, where do you buy your crack before you start writing code? (laughs) Just heads up on that one. It'll happen. You're going to want caching, rate limiting, all those things to limit the damage an API user can do to your running system. Yeah. And if they want a higher rate limit, they pay more. Now, also webhooks have their own issues. You're going to want to be careful how you call a client's webhooks 
so that a slow system at their end doesn't hurt throughput of calls to all of your other clients. Right. So like you have a Windows service out there that's responding to stuff and it's calling their webhook, but it's calling everybody's webhooks. What happens when their systems are slow and you're allocating a thread for each of those calls? All of a sudden you run out of thread pool basically and none of your other clients are getting their webhook calls. You got to think about that in the architecture. You're going to need to handle errors and system outages at the client end with at least some sort of back off and retry mechanism. Yeah. If and a, don't do that linear, by the way. Yeah. Oh, no. We, we've talked about this before. But if a client's webhook fails for long enough, you need to stop trying. And, yeah. Because if you just keep re-queuing it, yeah. what's going to happen is, is they're going to come back online and you're going to instantly murder their web server. You need to be able to surface information about webhook failures to the client as well. Let them know, hey, something's wrong, y'all. <laughs> no, you. <laughs> that's what that's called. Yep. Oh. So yeah. speaking of no, you, uh, the next issue is going to be reporting and data archival and export. Uh, your clients are going to expect to be able to make business decisions based on their data, if even if you're storing it. This usually means that they are going to want to slice and dice the data themselves. If you try to predict what they're going to want, you're going to be constantly adjusting it. Um, so interesting thing, we uh, like I said, we're, we're so close and uh, until we started getting the migration issues, the biggest problem we had was, oh, hey, we need we need this information for this report, that information for that report. We we ha- we have a couple of just like, all right, these are the official like you know gone through legislature reports that we have to put out, and then we have the oh, hey, we need we need this for this annual report or this quarterly report. We just need this information. To, put, to take from here and put into there. And so we're creating a CSV for them that they can pull back with just the data they need. And it's, it's really nice because we can put a lot of stuff in there and they can pull it back and then open it up in like Excel or something and filter out just the things they need. Yeah. What you don't want to do is write custom reports for everything they ask for. Oh, right. That's why we did it this way. <laughs> yeah, I've seen way too many systems that, that do that. That worked in the early 2000s because people didn't realize what they actually wanted anyway. Mm-hmm. But now they're starting to get smarter and data is getting to be more important and you just you can't get away with it. Speaking of it being more important, your reporting operations need to happen in another system. They don't happen in the transactional runtime system. Because what will happen when you do that is you're going to put a lot of indexes on all your various tables And now your writes are going to be slow in the running system versus, hey, I'm moving this over to a reporting database. It is available for them to do their thing, but they can't screw up production running stuff, you know, doing some kind of data cube junk. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, You probably also don't need up to the minute data in your reporting system uh, unless you do. I've I've seen where you do. Yeah. Um, So that can move it over at a slower rate if you don't need that. Yeah, I've, I've also noticed on that uh, up to the minute thing, a lot of companies will say that they need it up to the minute, but then they, they have like order systems and sometimes orders get sent back. And mm-hmm. so their up to the minute isn't even accurate. Yeah. Clients are also going to want to be able to pull their data out of the system. This may be because they're leaving. It can also be because they want to perform analysis on the data 
kind of on their own system, possibly by combining it with uh, data from other systems. So you need to make this easy to do. This goes back to what I was talking about with the, the CSV. We found out what, what specifically they needed. And so we created this, uh, this report basically that comes out. It's just a, a, a spreadsheet of all the stuff that they need in there. Now, the next one is leaving multi-tenancy. Yeah. Some- clients get bigger. Uh, it happens. And they may not want to be in a multi-tenant environment as they get past a certain size. Particularly large companies may simply want their data segregated from everyone else to reduce risks in the event of a breach. There may also be regulatory or contractual obligations that require them to separate their system from everyone else. Yeah, and they may also just be trying to keep some measure of control over how your system updates impact their system. For instance, I would love to have Windows 10 that isn't subject to Microsoft for a little bit. Oh my goodness, that <laughs> I knew that would set you off. But <laughs> Will is referring to what happened yesterday to me. Like Windows update just completely I, I, bricked my computer. I yeah, had to may I describe it. it in metaphor? Yes. Uh, Beach is a shiny new car, and Windows update is a person throwing birdseed on that car in an area with a lot of pigeons. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's pretty much pretty much it. That's a good one. Um, yeah. So speaking of what Beach wants to do with Windows 10, you have to have a plan in place for what happens when a client leaves your system. Uh, this would include things like the following: uh, how long the system keeps their data after they've left, uh, how they can download that data. You know, again, after they've left, you don't want to just cut them off. It's like, hey, you know, let them get their stuff out. That way, they may want to come back. Uh, and whether they have an option for hosting separately and how that happens, how that, how you're going to move them to that. Yeah. And speaking of them coming back, you have to think about how you handle clients after leaving when they want to come back. A client may leave your multi-tenant environment, work on a dedicated system for a while, and then want to return. The thing is, they may decide to go back to the multi-tenant system after quite a while uh, due to cost, a lot of other considerations. So you really, I mean... Never assume that a client's decision is permanent. So the final thing is the fun that you run into when you have third-party services. Uh, you got to be really careful how you use third-party apps from within your own multi-tenant app because your clients can cause problems for your other clients. For instance, if you use a third-party email service provider, you need to consider what happens when a client starts sending a lot of spam. Similarly... With a multi-tenant system, you may find that your cost goes up significantly with third-party services as you move from sort of a starter plan to an enterprise plan. And we've run into this with a couple of different things on the podcast where we've we've wanted to move up and it was, all right, you're paying $20 a month the next Level is $200 a month. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And you're looking at it and you get better reporting, which you may want, but um, you kind of need to know that's coming before you hit it. You know, it's, it's like every other brick wall Um, and rate limiting can be an issue as well. If you're using a third party API, uh, if one client has a big job processing through a third party, it could slow down the processing of work for other clients. So for instance, they only let you do a thousand requests an hour. 
Mm-hmm. Well, if one client got 950 of those and your other 50 clients are sitting out there, they get one apiece. You also need to be able to track utilization of your third party services. You know, if like Will's talking about, your account is charged based on volume used, your prices need to reflect this. While pricing discussions are not part of your job, most likely. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At some point, management will come to you wanting to find out who's using that third party service and how often they're using it. Yeah. And that usually happens when they get like a $20,000 bill that they thought was going to be like $400. Yeah. Um, and they get real interested in your logging mm-hmm. at that point. You know, you really need to build this kind of tracking in from the get go. Right. It's hard to retrofit this kind of stuff and you're going to miss things and then you're going to get blamed. Yeah. Third-party services can also cause issues with your system. If the service is down, it may impact your application and you really need failovers. We've talked about this in other episodes. Right. So if you've got an email service provider, you may need to have a second one as a backup and you send some of the traffic to it all the time. Mm -hmm. And when the first one goes down, all the traffic goes to the second one and you need to be able to flip that switch. Yeah. to make that happen. You should always also be able to turn uh, third-party services off quickly. And your application should be written so that it can run with reduced functionality until they come back on, right? Like your email service provider, it, it shouldn't take your entire system down. So if it's just like sending emails out to confirm that they now have an account, they can still sign up for an account. They just don't get the email for a minute. It doesn't mean that your entire service goes offline. You know, um, and it, It may also be where you're calling to another service and, hey, that service is down. So you take that information, you store it, and then you retry later. You also need to be careful about the data that you send to these third-party services in case they get breached. Um, And this can be anything from medical data to passwords. Um, Passwords are especially bad for that kind of stuff. You you just got to be careful. And nobody thinks about this until they get hit. Guys, properly designed systems for multiple clients, they're a lot more complex than simply adding multiple clients to a system. A lot of considerations come into play as more clients start using a system. If you don't plan well enough, you'll find yourself spending a lot of time and effort reacting to problems caused by having multiple clients in a single system. Marketing people and vision people don't really consider this stuff before deciding to go multi-tenant. So you're going to have to bring this up yourself if you're tasked with making a system multi-tenant. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I just want to you know, kind of drill in the point of never forgetting human nature Uh, And there's really two parts to this. The first is, is you don't forget what happens to human nature at scale. Uh, At scale, you're going to have some people that abuse common areas. You're going to have people uh, just not getting along, people that do things differently. And you need to be considering this from the get-go. The other thing you have to consider with human nature is that people sometimes are outliers, extreme outliers uh, in many cases. And you need to know about this beforehand. In other words, you need to start looking and going, okay, how will somebody abuse my system? If somebody misunderstands how this thing works, what is going to be the logical consequence of that? Even if it's one person in a thousand that will have that misunderstanding. If you have a thousand people, you've got that person. 
And you should always take these kind of things into consideration in any system that has multiple people interacting with it. Uh, If you don't do that, you're eventually going to have to take it into consideration and you're going to be doing it in a reactive manner instead of a planned manner. Uh, This is part of the problem that's going on with Facebook. You know, Mark Zuckerberg thought that everybody uh, should just openly interact and everything should just be out in the open and, and nobody has social circles that they talk about certain stuff in front of and other social circles that they don't. Uh, that was kind of his overriding premise. And it really ignored human nature, especially at the kind of scale that Facebook has built up. And as a result, Facebook has a lot of problems and they create a lot of problems. So again, just reiterating, do not forget human nature because human nature right now for most of us is the only kind of nature that is likely to eat us. That's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.